it, it definitely altered my trajectory. Yeah. So uh, in, instead of uh, finishing medical school in a few months and then uh, going off to residency, uh, I, I took an entrepreneurial leave of absence, co-founded a company, um, got a master's in management from Carnegie Mellon so I could figure out how to run a business. Yeah. No, this is the, this running a business is like the, like nearly the last thing in my life I ever thought I was going to do. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. You're going, going deep. Matt, thank you so much for coming on Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I'm really excited to be talking with you. Oh, uh, I'm excited to be talking with you as well. That pause was was far less brief than I thought. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm supposed to actually do a clap at the beginning. That uh-huh. helps Dan sync the, the videos. But now that we're like into the conversation, I'm just going to roll with we're it. Pass the clap, Dan. He'll have to figure it out. Um, so I want to go back to a very specific period in time. Uh, I believe you're in medical school and working as an EMT or as an emergency response medic and identifying or recognizing an issue with the treatment of stroke victims. Can you paint a picture for us where you were at that point in time and uh, how you came to this realization? You know, I, uh, to start with, I wish all of those things had happened at the same time. Yeah. That would have saved me five years of my life. Yeah. Um, uh, it started 10 years ago. I was an EMT in Boston. Um, as an EMT, you're taught a stroke exam. Basically, uh, I ask you a few clinical questions if I think you're having a stroke, and from the answers to those questions, I then make all of my triage or treatment decisions. Would you like a stroke exam? Sure. Put your arms up. Okay. Smile. Squeeze my fingers. All very symmetric. Congratulations. You are not having a stroke. Awesome. So, you can imagine that that um, is only so accurate. Yeah. We do it because it's better than flipping a coin but it's not much better. So um, I, it was the first month on my job, uh, first month as an EMT actually um, on the ambulances when uh, I, I know that I missed a stroke. I probably missed more because as an EMT or a paramedic, you're not very good at identifying stroke. It, it's, it's difficult. You, a stroke happens in many different parts of the brain and the symptoms are very, very different. And, and a stroke isn't as common as um, a respiratory infection or a, a fall, you're only going to see uh, a few strokes a year in a given EMT or given paramedic. Um, and most of the time, especially in the U.S., we don't know that we missed them. We don't know that we missed them because we don't get any kind of feedback. The only reason I know that I missed this one is because we, were, we, we took this woman to this hospital. We, 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 we thought we knew what the, the problem was. We, we discharged the care to the attending physician in the hospital, did our documentation, then left, went, went back out on the road. The very next call that we had, though, we took the patient right back to that same hospital, and the doctor that we had discharged care to followed up and said, you guys missed the stroke. We just had to transfer to the stroke hospital. So that, that was um, a delay in care, and it always is a delay in care when you um, take somebody to the wrong hospital. And it, if all hospitals were the same, it wouldn't really matter, right? Because every stroke would be treated the same at every single hospital. But it takes a lot to treat a stroke. It's, it's not just like I can do CPR. Any, any person who's trained can do CPR. It, it's not like I can just give a drug. Um, it takes a big, giant infrastructure of people technology and facilities in order to properly treat stroke. So we have 
certified stroke hospitals. And that's where every stroke patient should go. This patient did not go there first, and she probably had a delay of about two hours for treatment. So that was the beginning. Um, I didn't think I was going to um, be in business 10 years ago. I didn't think I was going to be doing R&D on products 10 years ago. I thought I was going to go to medical school. And uh, I chose Pitt to go to medical school um, uh, because I, I, the people here are very interesting. So uh, would you like to hear that story? Sure. So, um, you know, like uh, when you, there's like accepted student weekends, um, they even got those for medical school. Yeah. So, um, I was going to the different places where I'd been accepted and I was um, spending the time interviewing uh, the emergency faculty, the emergency medicine faculty, because my track, I was going to do research. I'd, I'd been doing research. I was, I was going to get much deeper into it. And so, I was, I was trying to understand who I was going to be working with and trying to evaluate where I wanted to go. And, and Pitt was very unique because the kind of, um, there was no pomp. There was no circumstance. Uh, as soon as I was talking with anybody, I was on a first name basis. Um, I, there was a, there's, there's a. Were you not getting that elsewhere? No, no, no. I mean, I, I don't know how many doctors you know. Not many. Um, they're, they're, they're not always the um, easiest to warm up to, let me say. Okay. Um, but. The, the story I like to tell is um, uh, the, the head of research here um, came out of his office when I was doing the tour, when I was, you know, had a, a meeting with the other, other physicians. And this guy, he's literally at this time saved thousands of people's of lives with his research. Not his hands, just his research has literally saved t- thousands of people's of, thousands of lives. By now, by today, it's 10,000s. Wow. And by the time he's gone from this planet, shuffles off this mortal coil, it will be hundreds of thousands of people's lives that his work has impacted. Hi, my name's Cliff. <laughs> um, just so much success here and so little pretension. Um, that, that's what made me come to, to Pittsburgh. So when I came, uh, I dove right into research. Um, I, I, I uh, focused on acute neural injury. So basically that stroke and traumatic brain injury. All of my research, all of my publications have been in those topics. Um, in, in the stroke topic, um, I was working on better clinical exams for medics. Okay. So instead of squeeze my fingers, lift up your arms and smile, I was trying to find ways using big data, thousands of patients, how to make exams that were both highly accurate and that the most basic provider, an EMT basic could reliably do. The team I was part of was uh, six or seven. Um, We actually conducted at the time the largest pre-hospital stroke diagnosis study that had been done in the U.S. at the time. And we failed. It was three years of failure. We tried all of these different iterations. We, We brought in external data scientists, but nothing we could do could be both highly accurate and a basic EMT could do it. It's really challenging. I was succeeding in the traumatic brain injury work, but the, all the stroke work was coming up zeros. So then um, I, I think it was October 14th, 2014. I was last year in medical school. Um, I had a few months left of mostly uh, uh, um, uh, elective rotations. And I was sitting through a... Um, 
uh, a, a lecture by um, a, a guy who was going to be an MD-PhD in neurosurgery. And um, he was doing some kind of eclectic surgery on the optic nerve. I don't remember anything else about the talk because as soon as he introduced the technology, it felt like a ton of bricks hit me. It was, it was the only time in my life I've ever thought of a, having a moment that would be akin to a eureka moment. Yeah. I immediately thought, we can take this technology, we can shrink it down, we can make it durable, we can take the waves away when, and, 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 and just be able to automate it, automatically, automatically read the waves and we can put it in an ambulance. Yeah. We can, we can solve what has like a whole new approach to what has been vexing us for years. So um, the next thing I did was um, call Dan, Dan Willis, uh, my co-founder. He and I had built a few things together in the past and um, I had him over to, to my house uh, probably November, December that year and um, uh, outlined the science for him, told him all the things that, that, that we needed and what it would do. After three hours or so, I said, can you build this? And, and he said, um, uh, maybe with a, a bit more arrogance than he should have, yeah, sure, I think I can build this, not a problem. And um, he followed that up with, but I don't really think this is a clinical issue. I don't think this is worth quitting my job over. So, holidays came. Um, I, I, New Year's came. And maybe the second week of 2015, he calls me and he says, uh, tells me the story that um, one of his older colleagues, he was at a large engineering firm, one of his older colleague's wife had a stroke over the holidays and the medics didn't catch it and they took her to the wrong hospital and they didn't know how much she was going to recover now because she had so many hours of delayed treatment. And he said, <laughs> he said to me words that I, I don't know, maybe I've had nightmares about, find me six months of salary and I'll quit my job. So it took me till uh, another five or six months to find that uh, to find that funding, but did, and um, we've been going ever since. So one thing that you've you've touched on twice, but I want to make sure is explicit so the audience understands is this delayed treatment, and that it it can be you know if if I have an open bleeding wound, then it's clear that like if we just let this persist for a couple hours, that's going to be really bad for me. But can you talk through? the ramifications of delayed treatment, specifically when someone has suffered a stroke and why this early identification is such a big deal. Yeah. So, um, a heart attack kills or you recover from it. You're going to likely get back all of the function or at least the vast majority of the function that you had before your heart attack if you live through it. Stroke's not the number one killer in the US. Two, three, four, I think it's number five and it's falling but it's the leading cause of disability. It's a leading cause of disability here in the US and in every country in the world. Wow. There's a phrase that the family members of uh, stroke victims have, that I've heard them say, use to describe the disease, and, and it's a fate worse than death. A fate worse than death. So imagine either yourself or a loved one spending 10 years, the last 10 years of their life in a nursing home, unable to walk, talk, or take care of themselves. They may or may not be cogent. They may or not, may not be with it, but they're alive. They're just in a really bad place, and that's the only place they're going to be in for the rest of their lives. So the only thing that we can do to prevent disability and stroke is early treatment. We have two good treatments for stroke now. 
but only 15% or so of U.S. stroke victims are getting treatment. And the reason is because of delays. Now, the stroke care pathway is long. You've got to call 911 first. That's, that's huge. Don't delay. Call 911. You have the EMS portion of it. You have the imaging portion in the emergency department. You have the, the, the activation of the, of, the, of the neurosurgical suite or the neurointensive suite. The stroke care pathway is long, and there are many places that we focus on in order to reduce the delay of treatment. But the single greatest delay comes at the very beginning. It comes because EMTs and paramedics do not have the tools that they need to accurately identify stroke. And so, therefore, they take, they're very likely to take you to a non-stroke hospital. And that's not their fault. That's just the probability of so few hospitals being stroke hospitals. Exactly. There's only 200 comprehensive stroke centers in the entire country. There's 950 primaries, but there's only 200 hospitals that can treat the most severe strokes in the entire country. And only 7% of us in the whole country live closer to those hospitals than to any other hospital. So there are a select few of us who, who may never have to have the problem of uh, misidentification in the field. But for the vast majority of us, it's important. It's important that your medics can ID you. I mean, it, it's so important that we've gone to great lengths. I don't know if you've heard of the, the CT ambulances. Uh, no. So there's about 20 of these running around the country now. There are these ambulances that have a CT scanner on them. So all they do is look for stroke. They, they're only, they only go out when the dispatcher thinks that there's a stroke. They cost about a million dollars to build, million dollars to operate every year because you have to have a neurologist or a nurse practitioner on board. And they're not catching very many patients. I did, a, I, did a, I did a shift on the first one here in the U.S. in, in Houston. Um, and, and, and during that shift, I mean, it's a great piece of work. It's a, it's a, it's a fantastic machine. And, and it was only one day, but I, I do know some of the numbers from around the country. But th that day, we had calls, but none of them were treatable strokes. None of them did we make any difference. If anything, we might have delayed them. But we did nothing because we ha could do nothing because that, that big, giant CT ambulance has one and one only purpose, to identify and treat stroke patients. So we only have 20 of them in the country because they're really, really, really expensive to build and they're not that cost effective. Um, for the rest of us, when we miss a stroke in an urban area, the average delay in treatment is two hours. Two hours in stroke, time is brain. Two hours is, is tens of billions of neurons. Two hours can be the difference for a stroke patient between being able to walk at the hospital discharge and never being able to walk again. Two hours can be the difference between being able to go home in a few weeks or having to live in a nursing home for the rest of your life. Two hours can be the difference between life and a, a fate worse than death. So that's the important part is, is delay. We're not making a treatment. We do, we're not making a therapy. We're making what I like to call a therapeutic enabler. We have good treatments for stroke. We just don't have the tools on the trucks to get the right people to the right hospital as soon as possible. And there's a universality to this story, which is in everything that you do, in every effort, whether it's in the building of something, the raising of a child, anything that you do, time as a lever is always best at the earliest point. So, so the, the care that you give to that child in its first few years of life, the nurturing that you give to a business in its first few years in existence, the treatment that you give to someone on the immediate onset of the stroke or some sort of condition occurring, 
is where the greatest leverage is going to occur. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know that I've I've thought about it in 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 such general or universalistic universal terms, but yeah, um, I, I think that probably fits well with my personality. I I, I I tend to move quickly and hold on. Yeah. One of the things that's utterly apparent, and it was apparent when you were showing us the, the devices here beforehand, I want to make sure people are watching the video so they can see how miniature this is, but um, we interviewed a famous venture capitalist, Andy Ratcliffe from Benchmark Ventures. And he says, the thing that I always look for is, are these missionaries or mercenaries? Because you threw some pretty big numbers around million dollar vehicle, um, you know, millions and millions of dollars of costs associated with this. But it is at least apparent to me sitting here with you, hearing you articulate this story, or what I can only imagine is the the pain of of having someone on the team's family members actually go through this experience. But it sounds like this is a mission as opposed to just the mercenary, which is basically tied to I see the market opportunity. I see that we could sell this thing and make this money. It, it doesn't appear that, that is in any way, shape, or form resonant with you. So, uh, you know the the uh, the, um, the markets, huh? The markets, the markets. Uh, outside the U.S., uh, in in many many countries, uh, this just makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense because the, the 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 organizations that have to pay for healthcare are the ones that also provide it. So. They want to provide preventative care. They want to provide early treatment because they're going to have to. They're going to have to pay that nursing home bill for the ten years of disability that that stroke victim has to live through. Now, here in the U.S., everybody has that intention too, uh, but the system is it's not as easy. Um, no, nobody goes into EMS to get rich. Nobody goes into EMS research to get re- rich, and there aren't many people in EMS innovation. And uh, the ones I know definitely aren't rich. Um, yeah, this, this is, uh, this is a passion. This is, um, I don't know. I need a word that's even more dramatic than passion. Um, it's tied to the Eureka moment though. Yeah. Because for any problem solver, any scientist, any engineer, you're, you're living a, a, a life of consistent little like steps forward. Like, oh, that little dot connected, that little piece came together. But when you use some, uh, use a, a phrase with the gravity of Eureka, and, and you even said it's like the only time in my life I've ever experienced anything that could be like that. And so many things align all at once. And the the uh, the weight of that, the the force of that type of moment hits you. It's like it, it, you you start using a completely different language. It's almost like I don't want to say you recover from it, but you're you're just on a different path. It's it, it's completely altering the trajectory or the kind of direction that you may be pointed. It, it all definitely altered my trajectory. Yeah. So uh, in, instead of uh, finishing medical school in a few months and then uh, going off to residency, uh, I, I took an entrepreneurial leave of absence, co-founded a company, um, got a master's in management from Carnegie Mellon so I could figure out how to run a business. Yeah. No, this is the, this running a business is like the, like nearly the last thing in my life I ever thought I was going to do. Yeah. I, 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 when I was in college, I would I would kind of like I went to a liberal arts school. I studied f- philosophy, and so I I mean we kind of you know like half half lovingly, half not like rads the business majors. Yeah, and then here I am, head of a business. So what did what did family, friends, people close to you say when you talked about this change? Because it's like you know there's there's a degree to which there's the people around you. So, well, you're on this path trajectory. It's like ah, I'm taking a diversion. 
Yeah, basically, I had uh, two two kind of that can go into two silos. So uh, one, um, uh, uh, personified by my family, uh, much of my family. Uh, we love you, man. We support you, but uh, you know, you're the always wanted a doctor in the family. You're the first one in college. We want you to finish medical school and be a doctor before for Nana goes. And and then on the other side, it was like you know just full support. Um, I, I, and and I what I've what I've like gleaned from from both of those is that um, I, I, I I'm doubtful of, of the 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 statements like entrepreneurial gene. I'm doubtful of 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 the the the, the chalking up. Um, some entrepreneurial endeavor to something innate in a person. I really have a fantastic safety net. I I have the ability to do this. I I don't have to be concerned about how I'm paying for my rent next month. I don't have to be. I didn't four years ago, five years ago, before I started this, and um, I, I I didn't have to worry about. My 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 crippling student debt. It's just large, not crippling, for me. So like, this is um. I've learned from that support that I had, and and from that you know half loving, kind of half serious pushing of my of my family. Um, that uh, um, you know, with without that support, I definitely couldn't be doing this. Not not even just from a, a fiscal point of view but just even from a like a, an emotional support kind of view i don't think i can yeah i've got i've got two young children and my wife has a fantastic job and she's a fantastic mother and she can do everything by herself she does. <laughs> um it, it's just a plethora of support i think that enables allows for one to be able to follow one of those eureka moments where you don't just get to jump out of the bathtub and go tell the king how he can measure the gold. You have to, like you said, connect all those little bits and little bits. Here's a dot, here's a dot, here's a dot for a very, very long time. That is a freaking marathon. That's an endurance where the, the moment itself, the eureka moment itself, feels like you just want to sprint. Yeah. But you, didn't, you don't realize there's another 100 miles to go. You need to run off the fumes of that for, for a while. So let's talk a little bit more about the marathon. You showed us um, before starting the interview these different prototypes associated with it. And I think that the, the framework that you laid out would be really helpful for people to understand as well, where uh, proving that this is a viable model in kind of perfect conditions and progressing on to this is now a scalable product that has the proper markers and validations that we can sell it at scale. Can you talk through that process? Sure. So. Um Building a medical device is is really costly. Um, uh, it, it's not nearly as costly as making a drug. Uh, maybe two or three or four or five percent as costly, but costly in the tens of millions of dollars um, to go from an idea to a thing that's actually improving people's lives. Um, so the first thing you want to do, for us at least, the first thing that we needed to do was just to prove that the basic science worked. So we're telling people that we're not going to be using a CT scan, we're not going to be using an MRI, and we're going to be in these kind of austere conditions outside of the hospital, and we're going to help the EMT, the paramedic, know where to take their patient. There was a lot of skepticism, a lot of skepticism. The skepticism came, though, on many dimensions. It came from, you can't do this in this environment. These people aren't going to have enough training, or this technology won't be sufficiently accurate enough. 
So you have to take it piece by piece, point by point, step by step. And so the first thing we built, the first device that we built, it wasn't built for speed. An EMT could definitely not use it in two minutes, three minutes. But it could be applied to patients who were stabilized that had stroke and the fundamental algorithms and the fundamental electronics behind the device, behind the shell of the device, were working. And so we had about 50 patients. Uh, I, I think 18 or 20 of them were, were stroke patients. And we were able to show that, that there was a signal there, that this was way better than chance. It wasn't a powered study. We couldn't make claims about efficacy at that point. But what we could do is, is take that and leverage it into the next few million dollars that we needed to get to the next step. And, and, and with that, we were able to build um, a, a durable device. So this version right here is our third generation device. Um, this is used in, in emergency departments uh, across the country right now in a, in a national clinical trial that we're running. The preliminary results have reproduced what we did with our initial device. So the, the, the signal is still there. The accuracy is still there. So now what I do is now I'm trying to leverage the results from this study into the funds that we need, the resources that we need to do what's called a pivotal trial. A pivotal trial is the words or the phrase that's used for um, the, 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 FBI, uh, the FDA regulated trial that when successful, if successful, enables you to then put this in ambulances for real, to market, to sell. So um, that, that's, yeah, so that, that's in the, the biggest dimensions, three steps. Obviously, each one of those had about a million. But in, in those three buckets, we've, we've come up now at the end of the second one, and we're beginning that third bucket. So one of the interesting things that a lot of people who either don't have the um, education or the kind of pre-existing framework for going about an entrepreneurial venture such as this is that one of the crucial elements is not just finding investment to fund these different stages, but finding the right investors, mm -hmm. finding the people who outside of being able to write a check can provide experience or perspective or open doors for you because of their familiarity with this space. So that's the difference between a, a firm that traditionally invests in medical devices or in the healthcare space versus broader um, money just looking for a return or not having that degree of specificity. Can you speak a little bit to that as you're approaching what sounds like another round of fundraising, how you think about something like that as an entrepreneur, because there's the practicality of got to get funded, but the aspiration to have those right people line up with you. Yeah, well, I, I, you you, you want to get the right people in and out of funding. Um, so I never wanted to do a business. It's not just that I never thought about doing a business. I never wanted to. It was something I wanted to avoid, actually. Um, when I found myself at a point where I thought that I could probably make the biggest difference in my life if I went down this path, I reluctantly resigned myself to doing it. Interesting. So when, when having no experience and no desire in the first place to do this, I had to figure out how the heck I'm even going to try to pull this off successfully. So um, I started with, with values and then made principles. So um, if, you, if you walked in, you might have seen the, the, our, our company values writ large up there on that wall, learning, transparency, and growth. And they're not just written. They look like they're like carved in. 
you have to ask Carmelo who got to me who made all this space the, like it is. They're not but, getting changed anytime no, soon. That's, I mean, that's the you, good luck. Yeah, you can't you can't take those down. Um so so um everybody here I ask them to do things that they don't know how to do. Obviously, 80-90% is yes, they know how to do it. They've done it before, but I'm asking every single one of them just like I ask myself to learn something in order to in order to do a job that they didn't expect to do. In order to do a job when you don't have all the funds to find the best people to pay them to do it. Okay. Transparency is being able to not just admit when you're wrong, but being able to proactively go out and try and find that you're wrong. Okay. And that's where I come to surrounding yourself by people who have done this before. And that's the first principle. Um, it's great if you can find the funders that have done this before. But out of all VC dollars, venture capital dollars, only 3% go to medical devices, and most of those to post revenue. So we went out and we found people who were hospital administrators. We found people who had sold and made medical devices before. We went out and found the neurologist. We went out and found the, the, the EMS specialist, the, the, the emergency department specialist. Everybody we could that touched the silos where we, were, where we are working in, we went out and found them and tried to surround ourselves with them. Some of them are investors. Most of them are just advisors. Most of them, we, we either give them a, a, a little bit of stock or, 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 or some other kind of remittance for, for their time and their efforts to support. It's so important to find the people that have done this before. It's just not necessary that those people are the funders as well. Okay. Gotcha. Um, as you talk about comprising the team with that experience, one of the roles as I was looking at the website for Forrest is a chief medical officer. Now, a lot of the chief operating officer, financial officer, marketing officer, people can quickly grok what that is. Mm -hmm. Um, can you articulate that in this context, what a chief medical officer does for a company such as yours? Sure. So we have clinical trials, right? Um, so the, the chief medical officer is uh, experienced in clinical research. So not just benchtop research, physics research, energy, but specifically in research with human subjects. So our protocols, um, our, our, our chief medical officers, either writing those, advising us on those, um, implementing those, finding the hospitals to partner with in order to carry out that, uh, making presentations, scientific presentations, uh, making the making the connections with uh, key opinion leaders on um, different sides of the the country and the world who are operating within these clinical verticals of, of neurology and emergency medicine. Makes sense. Um, Matt, we've crushed this time that we had allocated for the interview. You have kept me captivated and I've learned a lot from speaking with you. Uh, we have two standard last questions that we do at the end of each interview. But before we hit that, I wanted to see if there was anything else that you were hoping to share today that I didn't give you the time or the opening to. How about two quick things? Bring it. Um, first, um, know the signs of a stroke. I won't spend the time enumerating all of them, but look them up. If you think you're having a stroke or somebody else is having a stroke, don't delay. Just call the ambulance right away. Um, and and uh, and second, if uh, if you are interested in what we are doing, please feel free to uh, to reach out to us. 
So you've basically just articulated our standard last two questions <laughs> for the interview, uh, which is issue a challenge. I won the game. <laughs> which is issue a challenge to the audience. And where can people connect with you in the digital world? So let's get super explicit. Website, social sure. links. What's the best place for people to reach out? Uh, so uh, forestdevices.com is the website. Um, I, our Twitter, I guess, is a hashtag forestdevices. Uh, my, my own email is just my name, matt.kessinger at Forest Devices. Um, so that's how you can connect with us directly. Beautiful. And we do have a little bit of time. So can you talk a little bit through those signs of a stroke? Sure. So, so the easiest acronym to remember is, is FAST. So um, it's, it's FACE. So that's uh, facial asymmetry or facial droop. So I asked you to smile at the beginning of this. And your smile is very nice and symmetric. Thanks. Um, uh, um, T on the other side is for time. It's a, it's the worst one in there because it just means call fast. Put that there. Uh, S is for speech. So that could be either slur speech or it could be, um, uh, the inability to speak. So you're asking me a question and I'm trying to answer, but I can't. And then A is for arm. And so I asked you to raise your arms up. So you held your arms up nice and nice and strong. They did not drift. But somebody who has a stroke may have an arm drift like that. So face, arm, speech, time, fast. Those are not the only signs of stroke. Right. If every stroke victim had one or three of those signs, I would not be building a device to identify them. Right. We use that acronym because there's actually 40, 50 different possible symptoms that you could be manifesting with a stroke depending on where in the brain it is and how severe it is. Those three just happen to be prevalent ones, ones that, that, that are relatively common and that we can put into a nice memorable acronym. And to take things down to a super basic level, um, when a stroke is occurring, can you just spell out to the non-scientific folk what is actually occurring in the brain that leads to that uh, irreparable damage to the neurons. Yeah. Um, so if, if you had a, a string or a belt or, or, or something, a tourniquet, and, and tied it around your finger or, or part of your arm really, really, really tight, what's happening? The blood circulation is getting cut off. Right. And so you leave that on for a minute and your hand turns purple. You leave it on for five minutes and it starts to really, really hurt. You leave it on for long enough and that tissue is dead. In the brain, the tissue of your brain is not getting blood. That's what's happening in a stroke. In, in, in this, in, 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 there's the bleeds, the hemorrhagic strokes, and, and then the blocks, the occlusive kind of strokes. So in the blocks, it's, it's li literally like a hose like there's, a, there's something blocking the hose, the inside lumen of the hose, getting the blood to the brain. In the hemorrhage, the vessels burst. And so you can imagine the, all the distal parts, all the parts past that, that hole, all, they're not getting blood. Yeah. You also have other problems that happen with that burst. But essentially, the brain is not getting the blood that it needs. And if you were to re relieve the tourniquet or the string that's on your hand after your hand turned blue... You got all your motion back. You got everything back in a few minutes. Even after it starts to hurt, you can get all of that back. But if you leave it on too long, there's no going back. Gotcha. Same thing in the brain. Gotcha. Except there's no pain. Yeah. Um, well, this has been incredibly educational. 
Matt, thank you so much for making some time to come on the podcast Thank today. you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been very enjoyable. We just went deep with Matt Kessinger. Hope one out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for watching to the end of this interview with Matt. He is clearly on a mission, not a mercenary. I'm curious in the comments below, let me know the mission that you're on.